Chris and Chris Talk Movies. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Chris Ferry, and of course, this is my co-host. Uh, my name is Chris Huddleston. And today, we are both very excited to be talking to you about the 1995? Eight. 1998. The 1998 allegory, shall we call it, I think? Pleasantville. There's a place where life is simple. People are perfect. And everything is black and white. Honey, I'm home. It's a place that's as far from reality as we can imagine. How about some marshmallow rice squares? Those are swell. But maybe it's a lot closer that. than we think. What happened? I'm not sure. <gasps> Look at me. I'm pasty. Morning, kids. Better get a move on or you'll be late for school. I put blueberries in them just the way you like. We're in Pleasantville? No! We're supposed to be in school. We're supposed to be in color? What's all the commotion? Who's that? I didn't think you'd want to come here until we'd been pinned for a little while. You can pin me anytime you want to. Or maybe I should just pin you. She's a fine young woman. She would never do anything for us to be concerned about. From the creator of Big and Dave. What are you doing to these people? You can't do this to them. You're messing with their whole universe. Maybe it needs to be messed with David. Comes a story about the loss of innocence. Oh, I brought you something from the library. Gee whiz. And the power of change. Well, what's outside of Pleasantville? There's some places where the road keeps going. Cinema presents. Look at my face. It'll go away. I don't want it to go away. Something is happening to our town. Jeff Daniels, William H. Macy, Joan Allen, Reese Witherspoon, and Toby McGuire. So what's going to happen now? I don't know. Pleasantville. What are we going to do, Bob? Well, we're safe for now. Thank goodness we're in a bowling alley. Do you have a synopsis for us, Mr. Huddleston? I do. And as you said, it's a 1998 film and it was directed by Gary Ross. And whoops. I kicked myself out. There we go. Uh, Okay. So the synopsis is as such. Two 1990s teenage siblings find themselves in a 1950s sitcom where their influence begins to profoundly change that complacent world. And it stars uh, Toby Maguire, Jeff Daniels. Um, why they have her, they don't have her like top billing. I don't know why. Reese Witherspoon, uh, Don Knotts is in it. Uh, William H. Macy, Jeff Daniels. I don't know if I said him already, but anyway, so. I had Joan Allen, right? Joan Allen. Yes. Joan Allen. So I watched this when it was originally released, but you had not seen it before. So how about if we start with you? Yeah. You know, watching it, I, I feel like maybe I, maybe I did see it. Uh, It seemed strangely familiar while I was watching it. Um, 
but maybe I maybe I just remember seeing the trailers. Anyway, uh, I I thought it was really remarkable. I thought it was super interesting watching this film from 1998 today because there's a lot that resonates, and I think that in 1998 the setup for this would have felt a little heavy-handed to me but it didn't feel heavy-handed to me at all watching it in 2022 and we'll get to that what i mean by the setup in a minute so yeah it's it's toby mcguire and reese witherspoon our brother and sister and he is sort of um super fan of this leave it to beaver-esque black and white 50s family sitcom Pleasantville and they're going to do a Pleasantville marathon movie marathon on a certain night and there's a kind of a I mean Don Knotts shows up as a television repairman they're wrestling over the remote and it breaks and he's Don Knotts shows up and he's this sort of 1950s television repairman and they're like you know right after it happens like we didn't call you Don Knotts turns out to be a sort of a god figure and this is a sort of a this is the magical moment he gives them a magic remote and they press the button and they get sucked into Pleasantville. So they're inside the TV, they're in black and white. They replace the son and daughter uh, of the Pleasantville family, Bud and Nancy or something like that. And um, he, he knows the he knows the whole universe inside out. He knows what everybody does and their jobs and their names and, and she not only doesn't know anything about where she is, but she hates the idea of it. Um, so that's that's where we start. And what I meant by the setup was it starts with them in class listening to their teachers talk about how dire the world has gotten, right? About the climate collapse and the hole in the ozone and global sea levels rising and greenhouse gases. Uh, the threat of nuclear holocaust. I mean, what were some of the other things that they um, were harping on in the class? They talked about, um, so they kind of cut between these different classes. And one was they were talking about, um, the the uh, teacher was talking about their job prospects. He said, you know, when you get it, your, your job prospects are just going to go down and down and down. And in another class, they talked about AIDS um, but it was mainly, I think, job prospects, AIDS, and climate change. Right. And, you know, in, in a way that I I don't, it did, excuse me, it didn't seem particularly, pl it was a comic device. It didn't seem particularly plausible to me that a teacher would speak to their class. In fact, the woman who's talking about the climate, by the end, she goes in the end of this, like, really doomsday picture of where they are with the client. She's sort of like, all right, can anyone tell me what Armageddon means or whatever, you know, so there's a, it's a punchline. But the, the way it's set up for the film is it's like, wow, if you're a kid today, things must seem pretty hopeless. Um, the subtext sort of being like, well, why is this kid so uh, enamored of this show? Well, it's literally black and white and everyone's nice to each other and there's security and the problems are small and manageable and everybody's polite and gets along and it's just everything's extremely pleasant in Pleasantville. Um, 
And the implicit question the film seems to be asking is, yeah, it was it was nice. Things were nice back then, right? Uh, and then we go into Pleasantville and stuff starts happening. I've been on a roll, so if you want to pick up. Sure, yeah. So um, so I had I watched this when it originally was released on home video. So 1998 or 1999, some somewhere around there. I had not seen it since. And didn't remember very much about it other, you know, I remember just the basics of it, <clears throat> but in getting ready for the show, you watched it before I did. And you texted me and you said something about, you know, this is this Reagan era kind of story. Uh, and I'm just paraphrasing what you, you said. Well, uh, Clinton era. Or Clint, Clinton era. Uh, but uh, apologies if I don't get it right, but it was like, and you said something like that seems kind of out of place now. And I completely misunderstood what you meant by that. I took it as like, remember when we watched uh, Turn, not Turner and Hooch, but Tango and Cash. Yes. And it's just like this really out of, you know, that's sexist and homophobic and all this kind of stuff. And I thought maybe like that was what you were getting at, that it was like, all oh, this is this relic of, you know, this earlier time or whatever. So then I start watching it and it starts out pretty slapstick. And I thought, did I just completely misremember what this was? I remember this being more substantive than that. Right. And, but that scene that you talked about where they, especially where they talk about the climate change and I'm sure it wasn't a big deal in the, you know, it was basically just setting up kind of what you were saying. Wouldn't it be great to go back to a simpler time that maybe never actually existed? It just existed in TV, you know, but I saw I just that little brief scene where the, the, the teacher is talking about climate change. And I just sitting on my couch <clears throat> by myself said, wow, nothing has changed in 20, you know, right. 25 years later, we haven't done anything. It's about not climate change. Well, we fixed the ozone hole. We fixed the we, ozone. Yeah. We were yeah. worried about that in, I, I mean, I think by 1998, things were actually in hand with the ozone layer. The ozone yeah. thing was a Reagan era. We identified it, but the Republicans who were in power at that time actually did something about it. We banned the fluorocarbons, the, the you know, the aerosols that were using it. And the ozone layer repaired itself relatively right. rapidly uh, just by taking political action and you know, uh, putting restrictions on what was causing the problem, uh, you know, which is in sharp contrast to where we are politically today. Yeah. But uh, no, no, I then, yeah, I'm then my text. So I thought this was something basically from when we were, I guess we were out of college by mm -hmm. the time this came out. But um, it was the, 1998 was the year they impeached Bill Clinton, right? So that was Newt Gingrich and the contract for America and and really the the beginning of Republican policy as attack, 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 right? Paint the enemy, aka the Democrats, as communists and socialists and trying to undo you know, our desperately pleasant America and and bring in all kinds of kind of moral decay. 
that has only that strategy has only amplified and amplified to the point now where I feel like you have figures like Donald Trump at the head, who is hardly, I mean, Newt Gingrich was not a Boy Scout, although he liked to talk about himself in that way, right? He was having an affair while he was impeaching. The, exactly. The people Clinton for having an affair. Exactly. The people who are, are trumpeting their own virtuousness now have gotten more and more ludicrously unvirtuous uh, in doing so. But um, lest we turn this whole thing into a political screed, um, you know, what happens in Pleasantville once they're in there is his sister, um, who is a free spirit and very, you know, I, I suppose in Pleasantville, although nobody calls her this, she'd be a considerate fast girl. Like mm-hmm. she likes boys and she likes to date and make out. And, you know, she's very connected to her own social, uh, you know, sexuality in a way that I think today feels uh, confident and body positive. But even in 1998, you're like, she's a slut, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and so she, she is grousing about how much she hates it here and how are they going to get out? And the, the captain of the basketball team who in the show is her boyfriend pulls up and he's gorgeous and she's immediately interested. And so she takes him to lookout point and start teaching, you know, they don't even make out at lookout point. They're just like the craziest thing they do in Pleasantville is hold hands. If you've been wearing a boy's pin for a long time and you don't get that unless you've been seeing them for weeks. And the people in this universe, anything that, yeah, anything that does not exist in the show does not exist in their lives. So everybody, you know, married couples sleep in, double beds, you know, or whatever you call it. So they're not in the same bed together. Single, single beds in the same room. Yeah, yeah, single beds in the same room. Yeah. So there's no sex. No one has sex. No one reads. So the books are all just yeah. blank pages. Um, and so they early on in the, in the movie, they're kind of like robots or something, you know, they don't know how to, well, they're anything. All, they're all following the script. Like exactly, the only yeah. Thing they ever do in their lives it what is what was ever scripted for them in the show, and at first, Toby McGuire literally knows every episode verbatim. So I mean, people will walk by and they're like, "Oh, hey, bud," and he's like, "Hi, Mrs." You know, he says his script, and everything fits. Per is just the clock keeps ticking right along. Whereas the minute his sister does anything, people are scratching their heads and looking confused because it it, it already starts to feel like something is wildly wrong somehow because she doesn't she doesn't she's not on script so she uh she she has sex with the guy uh, with her boyfriend in the show and color starts to appear in the world he he is you know he it's wonderful he thinks it's amazing (laughs) and he notices he's sitting there sort of trying to collect his thoughts after he drops her off and he looks over and there's some rose bushes on the other side of this white picket fence and one of the roses is red has been colorized and is red and so little spots of color start popping up around town he tells all of his buddies on the basketball team what happened and there one thing is they see basketball practice nobody ever misses a basket it's always it's always a swish so there's a shot where all of them are shooting a three-point and every single one goes straight through no rim all net 
you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, after he starts telling them about this wonderful thing, they start telling their girlfriends at Lookout Point and they start messing around. Uh, and, and one thing, it starts to sort of cascade. Toby Maguire uh, uh, starts at some point, they all kind of corner him in the in the in the coffee shop or the ice cream parlor, and they have a million questions for him because he seems to know. And they're like, "Where you know? Wh- how do you know all this stuff?" And he's like, "Well, I'm not originally from Pleasantville." And they're like, "What's outside Pleasantville? <laughs> like their, their street literally ends, <laughs> literally ends at the end of Main Street. What happens when you go to the end of Main Street is you just loop back around to the beginning of Main Street, and nobody thinks twice about it because that's all that's ever depicted in the show." Yeah, nobody's ever been to another town. So eventually, and the the uh, soda jerk who is Jeff Daniels um, is uh, he's a nascent artist, and so Toby McGuire gets a book out of the library, and once once oh, yeah, they have a library, you know, the library, and people start checking out books. But once he explains what's in the books, the pages of the book start to fill in. So it, 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 there's a kids' book called something like Harold and the Purple Crayon, or something like that, where it's about a kid who has a purple crayon and everything he draws comes true. And it's a little bit like Toby Maguire's character has the power to fill in, you know, to color in, but it, it takes off on its own as, as people start to have these passions and discover these deeply felt things that they've not had their whole lives, they start to become colorized. So you're starting, there's a, there's a wonderful scene early on where a doctor has a tongue depression and he's looking in one of the high school girl's mouth and her tongue is pink she's all black and white but she's like ah, and she's got a pink tongue that's so great it's like oh i'm sure it'll just go away you know nothing to worry about but uh what makes this film really really interesting to me is we get to a place where it it's it, it's spread uh, enough color has spread and the kids start listening to music that is different, you know, that's more like uh, edgy 50s rock and roll. Um, and, you know, and it starts to it starts to really capture the notice of the William H. Macy character, who's the husband uh, and father and the mayor of the town. You know, the people who become there's a certain group, mostly white men who start to become alarmed by all this difference it makes them uncomfortable it's a little bit frightening and they look to the mayor being like you know what's happening you know do or should we be concerned and, and and then the film starts to explore some some pretty interesting like what happens when a group of people in this case white men feel like their power and their comfort is threatened and it starts getting kind of totalitarian. Now, in pretty light ways, this is not a heavy movie, right? And nobody gets seriously hurt. Somebody does get punched in the face at one point. And there's a scene in which there's a mob that starts burning a pile of books. And then there's a sort of a crystal knocked reference where they smash the, 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 uh, he, the, uh, Bill, um, the soda jerk paints paints on his big plate glass window he paints a nude portrait of william h macy's wife who has Mm -hmm. sort of started to have uh, an affair 
he's colorized, she's colorized, and this they're they're very into this sort of beautiful, new, colorful world. And so he's painted this very expressive. I mean, it's tasteful, it's not pornographic, but it's like a nude, like he's seen in the art books. And the mob is really riled up by it, and they smash in his windows and completely trash his store. So without the movie, I mean, without the movie strapping on jackboots and like going there, it very clearly depicts like this is where this ends. So, you know, like this just snowballs and Toby Maguire sort of intervenes. They have a 50s kind of, you know, inherit the wind courtroom scene at the end where all of the coloreds and by which I mean the townspeople who are all white literally in color in color are sitting in the balcony right there's segregation between the coloreds and you know we could even talk about the fact that there's not a single cast member in pleasantville that isn't white Mm -hmm. it it's it's a monochromatic show in that way as well um so so there's echoes of 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 Nazi era fascism. There's echoes of, uh, you know, segregation and, uh, you know, the, the Jim Crow, uh, era. I mean, there's a lot that is referenced in this movie and I think they do it with a pretty light touch, but they don't let it go. Um, they put their finger on it very firmly, (laughs) you know, so you don't miss it. You're not going to blink and not get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but but watching it today after January 6th and stuff like this, I'm like, man, man, oh, man, it feels, you know, it feels like a canary in a coal mine a little bit. Did, did you feel that? Did you? Absolutely. Part, yeah. Like, my brow being like nope. I had like a trauma response to it. A- absolutely. And it's, you know, this is when I when I suggested that we watch this i i think i said at the time this is a movie that it was a popular movie at the time um you know i don't think it it wasn't like it made hundreds of millions of dollars but i but it was popular but it's a movie that does not nobody talks about this as being like oh this was one of the great movies of the 90s right and there aren't a lot of movies really when you think about it that are more relevant, you know, we're looking at like almost 25 years ago that this movie came out and it feels more relevant now than it probably did at the time because, and we've talked about this a little bit, in the last few years, I, and not to get too heavy handed on, on all this, but, you know, watching this in 1998, I would guess that my uh, my thinking about this at the time was, oh, they literally have book burnings in this film. You know, once the kids start, so all the kids are reading and it's like they're gaining knowledge and the powers that be don't want that to happen. And so they literally have book burnings. And in 1998, if you would have thought, oh, we're going to have book burnings, you would have been like, that's not going to happen. You know? And you'd think, oh, I see that the right wing today, I mean, they are really jerks. And this is wildly inappropriate and abuse of power to be impeaching a president over this content. Like, I don't if Bill Clinton had an affair 
then I think that's inappropriate for a president. I think that's gross, but it's not illegal and it it's not impacting. You know what I mean? It's not grounds for impeachment. It's mm-hmm. I don't condone it, but come on, can we you putting politics and running the country on hold for this? You know, partisan, you know, attack. And I think you're right that book burnings, you'd sort of say like, well, I get it, but you know that that's not gonna. We're past that. Like we're that would have felt really probably at the time again. Felt super on the nose, and it's like ah, that's not yeah. gonna happen again. They're like, come on, they're not Nazis. Yeah, <laughs> and you know now we are having, um, you know, I don't necessarily know that we're having book burnings, but we are having openly. We're, we're having book bannings. We're having book bannings, and I mean, we are openly having politicians and school board members and and people like this openly saying we need to ban certain books which i don't think in the 90s we would have really thought about that you know and and over the last four or five years i've thought so much about you know just we grew up in the 80s and 90s and just so many things like segregation and and censorship and book burnings and things like this like um i i said to you i watched sometime in the last year or so so back in the 80s there was this this group that was like the pmrc something like that that was this group that uh tipper gore al gore's wife started with some other people and they were upset about the content of records Um, you know, heavy metal records and rap records. And, you know, they were saying that it was causing kids to commit suicide and all these things. And um, some different artists spoke to, they had congressional hearings about this. And there was a video I had, you know, I had seen some of those things as a kid. You had like famously uh, D Snyder from Twisted Sister testified, but I had never seen this before the last year or so on YouTube John Denver testified and you could really tell that Congress had brought John Denver in as a ringer. It's like, oh, he's this guy's going to be on our side. He's going to be a conservative. And, you know, he was this, um, you know, probably pretty conservative guy who did these nice songs, you know, family oriented and everything. And he gets up there and, t- and it's just look it up on YouTube. It's really great. It's maybe 10, 15 minutes. But he speaks so eloquently and he says, um, you know, some of these records because they and they played the records in Congress and everything. And he said some of this, he said, I would not necessarily want this to be in my home. I do not necessarily agree with the content of this music. But he said, I am an artist and I am against censorship of all kinds. We should never censor artists about anything. And you know, you can really see that these mostly men are shocked, but they they also it's kind of not what we get today where they're all snarky. You know, they you can tell they respect him, but it's this really powerful video to watch. And I think and watching it, I think, OK, 25 years later, how we've changed. A, we would probably not have someone similar to John Denver in that, you know, they would be agreeing with Congress. They would say, oh, we got to ban this stuff, you know. And it's just, I don't really know where I'm going with this exactly, but it's, it's, you watch this movie and you think, man, 
we are going in the opposite direction. And, and, and you, uh, you could really see how these kind of things could, you know, how history repeats itself and these kind of things can play out again. Right. You know what I mean? Right. If in, if watching this in 1998, uh, your thought or my thought might have been, okay, we get it, but isn't that a little, you know, book burning, you know, if, if leave it to Beaver, they're going to be burning books like the Nazis did. And the, that just feels a little much like the doom and gloom set up on that. You know, the whole thing felt, it's an allegory, but the whole thing felt in 1988, probably more hyperbolic. Now, it doesn't feel hyperbolic. Uh, the doom and gloom in the classrooms, when we talk about climate change, and I know we just passed some climate legislation and they say, oh, this is the biggest climate thing we've done. It, it's really the only climate, it's the biggest because it's the only thing we passed. Um, and the very modest gun legislation we passed is extremely modest but it's still the only gun control we passed in the past 30 years since this movie came out frankly uh so it doesn't feel far-fetched now and we we haven't had people burning books but we've certainly had people banning books and you know potato potato you couldn't burn books now like books are digital so you can't burn it it's not but they even have that figured out the there have been and I don't know how successful they've been with this, but you think ah, kids today, they don't read physical books. They read digital books. Right. Well, they are there are a lot of library apps, um, you know, where you can you have access to thousands and thousands yeah. of free books. And in some of these school systems, they have even tried to to block the library apps to, so oh. kids would not, I, I don't know how they have been successful with that, but there've been attempts to do that, to block kids wow. from having access to library apps. And, um, and to, to be fair on that note today, I think it's, it's not really the other side of the coin. I don't, I don't know what I'm saying in terms of that, but you also have cancel culture, which I think is a, it's a predominantly left-wing thing to when somebody is me too or you know that, that well we'll cancel this person and i am not saying that i disagree with you know people's objections to certain you know if you have strong feelings about louis ck or i mean i was gonna say harvey weinstein but he's a serial rapist you know that's he's a criminal and he <laughs> dave chappelle maybe you know i sure, mean he's sure. not but, but killing anybody, but somebody does or says something that offends you or, you know, it, it, it trips your this person doesn't we need to cancel this person and ruin their career is a, to me a form of censorship. It's the impulse to censor. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and I think that's of a, of a similar piece, this idea of like, I find that unpleasant. Therefore, it must go. And I, I'm inclined to agree with John Denver, whether you point the lens left or right in that regard. It's like, look, uh, it needs to be part of the conversation. I mean, by all means, let's have a conversation about it, right? right. But um, there's not a lot of that happening either. There's a lot of shouting the other side down. And 
Anyway, I don't want this to become an overtly political podcast because we're talking about Pleasantville. But I, I do think um, I do think that the movie is in many ways it, it's more interesting and maybe even better today than it would have been to me in 1998. Yeah. Yeah. Starting out, like I said, you watch like the first 20, 30 minutes and my heart sank a little bit because I thought, oh, is this this going to be a dumb comedy, you know, but it but it, you know, as the 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 people in the town literally progress and evolve, you know, the film gets better as it as it goes along. And I think maybe um, kind of with the political aspect, I guess maybe it's human nature that you're always going to have, um, you know, there's always going to be people who are resistant to change. And I think. Um, you know, I think there are always going to be people that like, I was, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were talking about, um, like gay pride marches. And they said, why do, why do people, and this is somebody who lives in San Francisco. <clears throat> so a different, you know, kind of upbringing than we had in a kind of small town in West Virginia. And she said, you know, why do you think people would be so upset about that? Is it, is it, she said, I think it's, they just don't want to see anybody else happy. And I said, well, you know, that could be part, you know, they're miserable people and they don't want to see other people happy. And I said, well, that could be part of it. But I said, I think for some people, they just don't want anything to ever change. You know, we grew up, we didn't know any gay people. You know, we, we thought we didn't know any gay people turned out later. We knew, we knew a who, lot of gay people. Yeah. Yeah. It turned out later we knew, but it, but it, you know, and it was just kind of somebody being gay was something that you just kind of whispered about, you know, and we lived, you know, it was like 95% white. So there weren't any minorities or anything, but I think there are, there are, there are people in general that not just from a standpoint of, they don't want to get older, but I think there are people that in their minds, their lives would be perfect if just, you know, the, whatever the car they had when they were 20 years old, you just drive that car forever and just eat the same food and like movies would never change, you know, and all these kind or of things. You hear, you occasionally hear, ah, high school, those were the best days of my life, you know? And like, yeah, those were the best days of your life. Like you're 50. Yeah. It's been downhill from there. Like that's yeah. the yeah. thing I've ever heard. So I think there are always going to be people who are, um, you know, they don't want anything to ever change. They would just like things to stay the way that they, yes. and, and we all have that too. I mean, I definitely, I would like if kind of time could stop now in terms of like not getting older, I don't, you know, new things don't, don't bother me per se. But then on the other side, you have, there are always going to be people who are not, who want things to progress faster, you know? So I guess there's always going to be that battle of people wanting things to say the same and, and people wanting things to change very quickly. But as we've kind of outlined here, this is, this is just an interesting movie to watch for our moment right now, yes. because there's just so much about that, this that resonates that I don't know. I don't even know that the, I, I'm sure the filmmakers couldn't have guessed how almost more this this hits today than it did in 1998. Yeah, I feel like one of the subtexts of the movie when it was made was kind of like cautionary 
in the sense of like, this could happen to you. This could happen here. This could happen now. You know, it's not that far beneath the surface. You just need enough people to be, to feel uncomfortable that they start to, you know, organize and rise up in quote unquote defense of what they think is so pleasant that you or your group or the other uh, is, you know, first thing you try and do is identify the other. Second thing you do is try and separate yourself from the other. Then you try and regulate the other. And if you are unable to successfully regulate the other, you get rid of the other. And, you know, seeing that happen in a place like Pleasantville, you know, you you watch these people, they're sort of buffoonish. The mayor is a guy who's like, thank goodness we're safe. We're in a bowling alley. You know, there's a couple of jokes about how staid they are, but they're, they're not, they don't, he writes a whole manifesto of things like you can only use black and white or shades of gray paint. You know, they don't deny the fact that color is happening, but they want to keep it regulated and separated, separate, but not quite equal, you know? And, and so it, it's, he doesn't come off as a cruel or malicious man. He comes off as a frightened man, rigidly and increasingly desperately trying to control remain in control of everything control this and i think they're called even called like the anti-change group or something something along those lines something you like know that. yeah it's so, just like we just want everything to stay the same stay yeah pleasant. i mean again the movie i think the movie is an allegory and so a lot of this stuff is very on the nose like it's not about being so subtle that you might miss it it's about being like oh you know here's mr mr miser and he runs the bank you know what i mean like it's, it's designed for you to to get everything. But, uh, you know, I think today after, after January 6th, you think, man, this maybe in 1998, you think this couldn't happen here and this couldn't happen again now. Like just not, we're, we're so far past that. But now I think I doesn't feel like we're past it to me. It feels like people have forgotten a lot of these lessons of history. And a lot of these people are older than I am. So a lot of these, I'm, I'm, my grandfather served in World War II, right? So for my dad, he was literally a child at the end of World War II. And I think that the people in government today had parents, I mean, they're boomers. They were the, they were the baby boom of the people that were in World War II. So it's not that long ago. No. But there seems to be this enormous selective memory for some of this. You know, I mean, people, po political people were bandstanding and, and, and comparing Barack Obama to Adolf Hitler. You know, and I mean, it's laughable, but at the same time, you're like, that is a real obfuscation. Maybe I'm not using that word right. I'll stay away from the big words that I don't really understand. Um, I think that seems right. That's a real bending of history there. Mm -hmm. Like that's hyperbole taken to a point where it, you start to realize now that is the beginning of the negation of truth, right? We're going to call up, down. We're going to call left, right. We're going to call, you know, and it's a tactic 
It's a tactic that they use to undermine the very concept of truth. Alternate facts, right? Mm -hmm. No, a fact is a fact. Well, if there are alternate facts, you get to choose whichever facts you want to be true. And so there isn't, a, you know what I mean? And oh, yeah. really, we're living in that era now where it's that is it full blown. And I worry for our democracy. So it doesn't feel implausible at all to me. I I really I would highly recommend this movie. I think yeah, absolutely. I, and you know, I'm just sorry. One other thing oh, I want sure. to mention is so. Um, you didn't see this in movies in this era, but there's a conversation that maybe we'll save for another time. But and I've seen Tobey Maguire play other roles that in retrospect i would be like he's playing that as though he's on the spectrum like maybe not not rain man you know what i mean but like he's socially disconnected he has trouble forming deep relationships he has memorized every single episode of this show he wants nothing more than to get away from school and the bullies and just go home and plug in and watch the entire marathon of the show that he knows verbatim right and, and that is comforting and soothing to him. And in when things start turning to color, he's sort of a Jimmy Stewart character in Smallville. So this doesn't hold up from every angle. But he doesn't turn color until very late in the film. He doesn't turn color. And if you're watching this, instead of listening to this behind me, I have a clip where he's sort of, there's a girl who is sort of sweet on him and she's in color and he's not for most of the film. And he knows that in the script, she bakes, she's sweet on this character named Whitey, <laughs> this other kid named Whitey, who looks a little bit like a Biff, you know, mm -hmm. and she bakes cookies and gives them to him. And he's like, oh, you know, you mean you bake these for Whitey? She's no, I bake these for you. And he says, you bake these for Whitey? No, I bake these for you. <laughs> it goes on. It's like, who's on first? It goes on and on until she like shoves him, it, at, you know, in his face. She's like, I bake these for you. <laughs> you know, and he kind of gets through to him and he he likes her she's pretty and they start dating and whitey gets jealous and there's some very menacing scenes where whitey and his buddies like follow around in their car and cat collar and it's scary until he punches whitey he decks whitey he's like leave her alone you know and it's the one act of interpersonal violence that really happens in the movie I don't think he changes color until he makes his kind of inherit the wind speech at the end. I think so. Yeah. Right. He, so there's a part of him that stays Pleasantville, like stays static until something changes emotionally in him at the end. And he becomes color also. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I, I don't know if that chimed with you, if it's just because I have, such an intimate awareness with kids on the spectrum, but. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I, I wasn't really thinking about that, you know, watching the film, but, yeah. but yeah. Um, in 1998, you just can't, Oh, he's a sensitive kid or he's a different kid. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, you put a, people in a box that they're like, well, he's not real social. He's shy. But then you, you know, there's a way of looking at it in retrospect when you know more about it. And you're like, well, you could have played this that way. And he's kind of, whether he intended to or not, he's kind of a lot of this, I'd say 70% of this performance is sort of nailing it if you interpret it that way. I don't know. Yeah. 
he's definitely out of place in his own time. And then when he goes into this other world, then he blossoms, you know, because uh, it's just, I guess, so well suited to him. Um, you mentioned a couple of things real quick. You mentioned uh, Inherit the Wind. And I don't know, this is another thing that I've thought about a good bit recently. Like I brought this up to my parents not long ago. Do you remember we, we were in seventh or eighth grade and we went, so there's an actor's guild in our town and we went as a, I think an entire grade. I don't think it was just like our class. I think it was the whole County went to see the play inherit the wind. Do you remember that? I remember seeing it. I don't remember <clears throat> that we were there with all of the school kids, but I do remember watching it. So we went as science classes Okay. And I think that's so interesting when you think about that, because this was like mid 80s in a conservative town. Right. But we went to see Inherit the Wind and there was never, you know, they would talk about creationism, but it was always it was it was never like, well, here's what science says and here's what creationists say. And you decide it was just no, science is right. The creationists are wrong, you know? And I think about, I, I thought about that a good bit recently. And I thought, I don't know if that would fly today, you know? And, and we had teachers who were religious and believe, you know, I'm sure believed in creationism in a lot of ways. And it's just, I think it's, again, I think that shows how we have slipped back. You know what I mean? It's just like, I, I don't know. I think oh. teachers would probably get in trouble for that now. Yeah. Well, I mean, and back then it was just like not a big deal. We're going to go and see Inherit the Wind. And it's like, it, this it, says that science is right. It's the First Amendment, right? The separation yeah. of church and state. And we've got people like Lauren Boebert saying, it's not in the Constitution. It's just some other like, action. You know, you go on and on about the Second Amendment. It's just the First Amendment. You know, you don't even know the Constitution. There's this erosion of and now we've got a Supreme Court that's extremely religious and it's they're undermining this separation of church and state. I think it's there for very important <clears throat> reasons. And you go on and on about the founders. They baked it right into the document. It's you know, believe you have the freedom in this country to worship God or not in, in whatever way you choose, as long as it's not actively hurting somebody else. But do we leave that out of the running of the government? I think the saving grace that we have today, unless they're able to just, you know, block the internet and everything is that there's so much more knowledge readily available to kids that yeah. wasn't available to us as, as easily, you know what I mean? Maybe. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, I think it's, uh, it, it, it will be so much more difficult now than it maybe was in the past to, to keep kids from knowing the truth. I hope. Um, one other thing uh, I saw an article just today that really relates to this film. And it was about the Andy Griffith show. And it was talking about people longing for a town that never actually existed. And, you know, this, this film, when it starts out, you, they're really making a statement on the show. I don't think necessarily about people in the fifties, but, you know, 
what we were what people were presented with these shows back then you know was a very sanitized view of the world you know not even just in standpoints of that there was no racism because everybody was white and all of that but just people in the 50s weren't these robots that were presented in these shows people were much more you know were much more complex than that but but i think it's interesting that you know again Mayberry wasn't a real place. It never existed. But you have right. these people just like Toby Maguire in this movie wanting to live in this world that was never real to begin with. Right. Well, Mayberry is a good example. I'm not, I'm not an expert on uh, the Andy Griffith show, but I, I have seen it. I think that one of the things I remember is about Andy Griffith is it was a comedy, but occasionally something sort of troubling would happen. And Andy Griffith as the sheriff would sort of step up and face the discomfort and make everything okay, right? He'd figure it out. He'd solve it. He'd mediate. He'd mitigate. And then everybody could breathe a big sigh of relief and be friends again. Um, And light, light stuff. But it wasn't just a comedy. It was also about a community and a good sheriff who had a homespun, soft-spoken way of keeping things running smooth and everybody getting along right Hmm. and it was racist by omission right i mean it just didn't bring up uncomfortable topics but where i'm going with this is that you have a character and toby Maguire is is the atticus finch is the you know he's the character in this movie that stands up and says this isn't right we're we're better than this right and Mm -hmm. Andrew Griffith was that character. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't to kill a mockingbird, the Andy Griffith show, but Andy Griffith was that centerpiece was the guys like, well, no, Sheriff, he can't do now. Jeb, you know, he was the one that diffused and mitigated and solved things. And I think what people forget when they're like, Oh, wouldn't it be great? I'm like, well, you still need a good sheriff. Like you need somebody who's going to stand up and remind you that we're all in this together right yeah and and calm you down and and remind one party that they're a little wrong in this and you're a little wrong in that and we got to come together in the middle and in a pretty light way you know you have to be accepting of everyone even if you disagree with them and so you know it wasn't you know everybody was white and everybody was straight and all of that so they didn't get into any of those kind of things but still it was yeah you got to you got to get along with everybody. But that you know. doesn't get mentioned. Oh. People yeah. just want then when we want to go back to Mayberry where there weren't any blacks or gays, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, there was a, who's the Andy Griffith in your Mayberry? Like, I want to know who that person is because right. it's not Donald Trump, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? And yeah. maybe, I mean, maybe it's not Joe Biden either. I, I don't want to get back into the politics thing. No, but. no. But uh, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think Mayberry's and I, uh, Leave it to Beaver is the obvious example because of the family at the center of this show. But right. the Andy Griffith show is another example of that sort of era of like, well, let's spend a little time with our friends here for the half an hour in the evening after dinner. I mean, you know, you would never left that town. I don't think they would talk about going to Mount Airy or whatever, which Mount Airy is a real place. But uh, but um, yeah, so. I think you already said you would recommend this. Yes, I would. Um, 
Yeah, same for me. As I said, I I had remembered thinking this was a good film, but I just there wasn't a lot that I remembered about it. But it is, it, like I say, it's one that um, that I in my memory was like kind of a big deal at the time. Uh, but it's just never, you know, no one ever mentions this film, and I think it's it's uh, it's really really well done. And this director Gary Ross, he didn't do a lot. I mean, he's still around, but um, he didn't do a lot of films. And I don't really know why. I mean, this is, you know, we didn't even talk any about the really the technical aspects of this, but it's it's really well done just yeah. in terms of, I mean, there's great cinematography in this. And just, you know, as it progresses, as it's a little bit, it maybe seems a little bit gimmicky now because this was, you know, kind of early days of when they were colorizing uh, you know, that was a thing with music videos and all that, uh, you know, in the 90s was color, you know, it's black and white and we can add color to it. Um, but it's all really seamlessly done in this. Yeah, um, I think it looks great. And this is William H. Macy before um, Shameless. Yeah, you know, it's kind of uh, right in his hip pocket, William H. Macy, where he's the sort of befuddled, uh, put upon, confused under you know like um nebbish yeah <laughs> you know? i mean it's such a great cast in this yeah, and, yeah. It, and it's interesting to see as they go from these really simple uh characters to they become much more complex as it goes along and even the uh the the sort of boyfriend of um uh <coughs> excuse me of reese witherspoon is um What's the guy's name from the Fast and the Furious movies who died? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That's him. And I kept, I looked here, was going through the cast list. Um, I wanted to to have the name of the mayor uh, because that guy was, he, he died um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. But that guy was a great character act, yes. actor who always, he's not like you said, a terrible villain in this, but he was usually kind of slimy characters, you know, and he's just, he's just perfect as the mayor in this. So, yeah. so yeah, I would really highly recommend this because I, yeah. I, I'm sure there's a lot of younger, uh, younger people who have not seen this. And I think if you wanted to watch it as a date movie, it works. I think if you just wanted to watch it on your own, uh because you're interested in movies and you think well that's an interesting conversation they had um like i watched it by myself but i could have watched it with my wife my kids are a little bit young to get some of the resonances but mm -hmm. i could have watched it with my kids like there's nothing in this that is so objectionable you know that um like even even the nude painting he does it's art it's not you know what i mean it's it, it it's I think this is a film that watching it today has the potential to stimulate a lot of thought, a lot of conversation. We've had a Absolutely. lively conversation. Like I, we need yeah. to wrap this up, but I, I could talk about it. I'd get another beer. We could talk about it for another hour. Frankly, I just, it really got my wheels spinning. So it's not, it's not going to bump. It's not going to ever be one of my favorite movies of all time, but I'm really glad that you suggested it. And I, I really dug it. I think it's more relevant now than it was in 98. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, like I say, it, it, there for a bit, I thought, oh, this is not what I thought it was. But it, it turned out it was kind of what I thought. I knew it was a lot more, had a lot more depth to it than what it appears. And, and definitely, 
if you turn it on and you're just you watch the first 20 minutes or so and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be just a dumb comedy. And that's not what this is. Uh, ultimately. Yeah. I uh, <clears throat> we didn't even touch on Don Knotts as God and God as TV repairman. <laughs> like that's whole deus ex machina model of this magic guy that allows this all to happen and and talks with them and argues and tries to get things back to normal and. Then at the end, it's sort of like, well, maybe you were the perfect people after. It's kind of like, wait, what? I want to, we need to talk about the uh, theology depicted here and the structure mm -hmm. of this. You know what I mean? Um, and it's smart casting to have Don not, you know, this yeah, had to have been one Harry. of his last Harry. roles, you know. He had one bullet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> West Virginia, West Virginia native uh, yep. Don Knotts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a good movie that does not uh i don't think probably gets the credit that it deserves yeah um yeah sort of so. forgotten well yeah so uh, so chris and chris talk movies at gmail.com that's our handle we're on the socials we're on youtube maybe you're watching us now we're on the podcast stuff maybe you're listening to us now either way please like and subscribe send us a note a comment feedback thoughts prayers <laughs> i don't know we just love to hear from y'all and um, next time we've got a humdinger locked and loaded. And uh, I thank you so much for suggesting this next one. Next time we're doing the 1989 Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. Ooh, dog. And a first time watch for me on this one. Man, oh <laughs> man. Get, get your cocaine. And <laughs> <laughs> Woo! it is a humdinger um awesome so i can't wait to talk about that with you why don't y'all watch roadhouse with us and uh and listen in and unless you have anything else to add i think that's it we will talk to you all next week bye bye